Hello, my name's Alex. Um, I'm reading today two passages from God's Word, first from 1 Kings 18 and the second one from Matthew 6. Firstly, 1 Kings 18, starting from verse 19. Um, Our story so far is that Elijah has predicted a drought that will only end at uh, his word. And then because that upset the king, he ran away and hid. After, uh, in the third year of the drought, God told Elijah to go back and confront King Ahab. And so uh, now we are reading Elijah speaking to King Ahab. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call upon the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two shears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. 
At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. Second readings from Matthew chapter six, um, starting at verse 19, uh, Jesus is speaking. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and venom destroy, vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, is within you, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he, much, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Good morning, I'm John. And uh, yeah, I'm going to continue our series in Elijah. It's almost to the, to the day of uh, the big event, isn't it? The, the giant barbecue. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we come before you and we're conscious of the, the high point in this story. We're conscious, our Father, of your awesome power that you demonstrate. We're conscious, our Father, of how small we are in light of that power. But Father, thank you that despite that apparent difference, you've reached down in love and in mercy and in kindness and you've shown us the gospel of the Lord Jesus and our Father, that by your Spirit, you've shaped us so that we bend our ears to you. Lord, may we indeed hear your word today. Amen. Have you heard of the Yogi Bear School of Decision-Making? Remember Yogi Bear? Yogi is leaning up against a great big redwood tree in Yellowstone National Park, and he's saying to his smaller friend, Boo Boo, making decisions, Boo Boo, is easy. My advice to you is that when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Or perhaps you experience uh, the other extreme. You know, you, you, you've, you've planned somewhere special. Table has been booked at the best restaurant that you can afford. You've got theatre tickets, the, the babysitter's all lined up. And your wife that afternoon is starting to go through her wardrobe and she's saying things like, no, this outfit won't do. Not sure if this blouse is right. Oh, do you think this dress will be too flashy? I wonder if it's okay to wear pants and a jacket. No, I wore that last week. Oh, I haven't got shoes to match that. You know, fellas, for us, it is so simple, isn't it? Shoes, socks, pants, shirt, jacket. That's it. We're done. Meanwhile, your poor wife is, is being haunted by the, that seven-word wardrobe horror. I haven't got a thing to wear. And she spends hours unable to make up her mind, not, not being able to decide just what's right. And you know that there is a price that's going to be paid for that indecision, a price that's going to uh, impact on your credit card somewhere along the way. And I know there'll be a price that if my wife was here, for what I'd say just then, that uh, I'd, I'd pay the price as well. But the indecision of the Israelites back in 1 Kings is no trifling matter. There was this whole nation gathered at Mount Carmel at the command of King Ahab. And Elijah challenges them. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver? You're sitting on the fence. Are you going to keep on hopping between this belief and that belief? Make up your mind, says Elijah. Stop being wimps. The contrast can't be any sharper. If, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That's the fork in the road. Which one is it going to be, people? And as Elijah confronted them squarely on this question, 
How did the people of God, did this nation of Israel gathered all around the countryside from north and south, east and west, here they are at Mount Carmel, how did they answer? Well, you'll see the answer at the end of verse 21 in 1 Kings 18. How long will you keep on wavering between two opinions? And the people said, nothing. Their silence was deafening. You've been in that space. I've been in that space. You know, we've all been party to those, those times of awkward silence when all you want to do is just to gaze at your shoes and you want to wait for that, that thick atmosphere to somehow dissolve. You know, it's sort of like school kids caught using their phones in class. But this silence is far more serious than his school kid guilt. These are God's own people. The ones who, who look back with warm memories to the Exodus, to the Red Sea, to Moses, to the walls of Jericho, to David, to the Temple of Israel. These were the people being asked... Which one is God? The Lord or Baal? And we've seen earlier in this series that, that Israel had failed to respond to the hand of God through the drought. Israel had grown indifferent to the ways of the Lord and they couldn't hear his voice. And now here at Mount Carmel, we see the full-blown results of that indifference. The Israelite nation, as they stood there, weren't even sure whether the Lord or Baal was the true God. They were silent. They were faltering between two opinions. Oh, you could actually say in some sense that they might have been quite happy having both being so indecisive. Here they were taking both forks of the road. But the Lord wouldn't let that go on any longer. Through Elijah, he confronts them on their indecision. And he demands that they pay the price for that indecision. The land desperately needed rain to break the long drought. But until the people were brought back to a commitment to the Lord as God then no favour could be expected from him. Israel had to repent. They had to turn from their idolatrous ways or nothing would be able to avert God's continuing judgement on them. And in this obvious demonstration in sending fire from heaven to show just who is God and who is nothing, there's a lovely little phrase at the end of verse 37, that in doing this, what was God doing? He was turning their hearts back again. Don't miss that. In all of the drama, in all of this barbecue that's burnt to, to smithereens, in all of the bloodletting by the, by the false prophets, in all of the people gathering around in this indecision, don't miss that little verse in verse 37. Verse 37. 
that this was God turning the hearts of his people back again. This is an act of mercy. This is an act of love. This is the act of a kind and good God who won't let his people continue to stray from him. And in response to all of this this drama that goes on there at Mount Carmel, in response to to all of this, this awesome power that's displayed, what's the response of the people? It's no longer silence. The people fell to the ground and they shouted out aloud, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then when they were immediately obedient to the Lord's instruction, they then followed what Elijah commanded and they put to the sword all the false prophets who'd been leading them astray. They took them down into the valley below and slaughtered them. Sounds like rough justice, does it? Is this part of the the word of God make us feel a bit squirmish? Our preference goes towards a God of love. How can this be? Well, these so-called religious leaders were plucking out men's eyes. They were blinding them to the truth. They were giving them a ticket to hell. They were perverting the truth of God and they were persuading a whole nation that a lump of stone, this thing they called Baal, that, that wooden pole, that Asherah pole, they were the things that deserved to be worshipped. Baal is God, they'd said. Would you eat food that is known to contain seminal poisoning? Are you undecided what to do when you've been out in the garden and, and you've caught your arm on a rose thorn and a week later it's, it's festering and pussy and it's all infected? Are you undecided about what to do about that? These Israelites were undecided. They were unable to choose. They were, they were paralysed for a solution. They were saying to themselves, must we choose between God and Baal? And so God, in his mercy, is uncompromising in his jealousy. And he rudely interrupts their lives and he forces the issue and he deals swiftly and severely to save his people. If you've been faltering, if you're you're unwilling to to, to make that clear-cut choice and commitment of who gets the first allegiance in your life. Is it going to be God or your career? God or your bank balance? God or your pleasure? God or your family? If If you're hopping between two alternatives with a foot in each camp, being Christian and yet not Christian, then it's useless to expect or to ask God for his blessings while we refuse to be unreservedly on the side of the Lord. It's foolish to talk about having faith in the Lord while we continue to fondle sin 
and to hang on to whatever it is that pushes the Lord into second place. What was the very first commandment that Moses gave to God's people? You shall have no other gods before me. Whatever it is in your life that seduces you, that, 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 that pushes God away from number one, God wants you to do to that what the Israelites finally did to those false prophets who'd led them astray. He calls you to eliminate it, to deal with idolatry radically, severely, because it will do you damage. Years and years ago when I was going through um, uh, theological college, <laughs> I had a mate in my same year who was in my, one of my study groups. And um, as the years went on, Graham became more and more aware that something that was tripping him up constantly was his love of his TV. Graham would veg out for hours watching TV. And this was before the opportunity of you know, binge watching with Netflix. Don't know what it would have been like now. This got in the way of his studies, got in the way of his, his own personal godliness in many ways. And finally, Graham decided he was going to deal with the matter and deal with it severely. He chopped up the electrical cord that went to the back of the TV. Not just once, but many, many times into two-inch pieces. He couldn't plug the TV in. It was as simple as that. His self-control was so lacking that it needed a radical management plan. You might find yourself in the same sort of situation in your workplace. You know, yeah, it's great to come along and be with God's people on Sunday, but on Monday back into the work environment, you might feel and find all those pressures upon you that, that sort of squeeze your faith in Christ, not just off to the edge, but sometimes over the edge. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to deal with that situation? God can call us to be radical to be uncompromising. Far better to stop a besetting sin dead in its tracks than to let it go lingering on, festering away under the surface. If it's taking God's place, then take it down to the valley and put it to the sword. But sometimes the things that keep us from having God first aren't always obvious, or at least not to us. Often they are so part and parcel of us that we don't even know that they're there. And it's not so straightforward or as instantaneous as chopping up the TV cord. Indeed, you might well think that this sermon's meant for someone else, that you have no trouble whatsoever keeping God number one in your life. It's no struggle for you. You really don't know what this sermon's all on about. Be careful. Be very careful. The Israelites are a lesson to us of how easy it is to compromise our faith while being blind to just how far we're being sucked in. When God exposes in your life a challenger to his lordship, don't be satisfied just with, with pruning off the top. 
Don't be satisfied to mowing it down to the, to the manageable level of a Saturday morning mow on the lawn. Attack its roots. Get out the axe. Hit it with zero. Bring in the stump grinder. For the sake of your spiritual health, eradicate whatever it is that works against godliness, that draws you away from knowing more and more of the Lord. The Lord will not allow us to have a foot in both camps. He is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another, for he alone is worthy of our allegiance. And if we profess allegiance to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, he expects us, he demands us that we serve him and serve him alone. There's no following God while still hanging on to sin. There's no being devoted to God while dallying around with Satan. There's no commitment to the Lord while compromising your living by other standards. Those words of Elijah should continue to ring in our ears. How long will we keep on wavering between two opinions. Elijah's call to the Israelites at Mount Carmel is, is echoed throughout the pages of the scriptures to God's people time and again. Elijah said, if the Lord is God, follow him. Moses said the same sort of thing earlier on after the golden calf incident. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Joshua said, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And we read it in Matthew 6 today from Jesus' lips. No man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other. You can't serve God and money. This chorus keeps on slapping us in the face. Don't keep on limping along. Don't keep a foot in both camps. If the Lord is God, follow him. But what about for you? Is the Lord God? Or is there some other person or some other, some other philosophy? Is there, is there some higher or more important thing that, that deserves your loyalty more than the Lord who's revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and gave himself up for you? What think you? It's an easy question to answer in this setting. You know what the acceptable answer is. But your genuine answer will be the one that you give by your actions when you're not in here, when you're not surrounded by your Christian friends, but when you're out there in your workplace, in your local environment, in your, in your neighbourhood, in your family situation, in that, in that rough and tumble of life, that's where the rubber hits the road. 
when you're faced with all the temptations of, of that particular sin that dogs your particular heels. And Elijah, his words will come to you. If the Lord is God, follow him. When that test comes, God doesn't want us to be like the Israelites who stood there in guilty silence, saying nothing. Their indecision exposed, their, their lack of genuine commitment exposed a failure of faith. I know this last week in my own personal life, there's, there's been a few occasions when, when I know I've been out there on that edge, when the challenge has faced me. And I've had to ask the question, if the Lord is God, follow him, rather than to drift away and follow elsewhere. I've had to struggle not to do what I think would, would satisfy and justify me. I've got to struggle to quell all of those things and instead to seek to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And on reflection, I ask myself, why has it been such a struggle to follow the Lord's way? Why do I hold back so much? Why can't I wholeheartedly throw myself in with the one who is God? And I can see myself in Israel's position with a foot in both camps, an inconsistent commitment, a failure of faith. And it's at that point that I remember the end of verse 37. I thank God that he does not regard our failures of faith as final. He loves us more than we will ever know. And for his own namesake, he loves us with a persevering love that does not give up on us. No matter how much we've, we've taken both paths, no matter how much we've turned our, our commitment to him into silence of guilt, the Lord loves us with an effective love that will melt our hard hearts and an active love that reignites those cold embers of our hearts. He turns our hearts back to him by bringing us to these focal points. When the fire of the Lord came down from heaven and, and vaporised that, that soggy bull and, and burnt up even that saturated stone of the altar, that stone that, that was saturated with water that would have been so precious at the end of this drought. Don't just pour one lot on, says Elijah, pour on two, pour on three, flood it. Drown it. They sacrificed the water. And when that fire came down and burnt that altar up completely, what then was the people's response? They fell to the ground and they cried out, The Lord, He is God. As Elijah prayed earlier, the Lord had turned their hearts back to him again. God could have simply left them on their, on their slippery slope to destruction. 
But here is his amazing mercy and grace. He turns their hearts back. He shows them again that he is God. And and while he may not ever again barbecue a bull on a hilltop, every time the Lord steps into our lives and intervenes and reminds us who he is, as we read his word, as as we talk to godly friends, as as circumstances just bring us back to that realisation, every time he causes us to look up and to capture afresh that vision that he is God, that is a gracious expression of his tender love and his care for us and his turning his hearts back. And isn't it true that when we most clearly see that the Lord is God, it is then that we can most easily reject all compromise and we can follow him all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we bow before you, each of us know those particular times where we've had our own Mount Carmel experiences, where you have showed us so very clearly that you are God. And our Father, in that, that, that crystal situation, we know at that point that you are the one to follow, that you are the one that, that we want to devote our whole lives to, that we want to give our hearts to wholeheartedly without any compromise. And yet, our Father, we get back into the rough and tumble of life and, and we fail and we fail again. And you bring us to another Mount Carmel. Father, thank you for today to remind us yet again of this, that if the Lord is God, then we are to follow him. Father, by your spirit, strengthen, enable and empower us to be the people who follow you. Amen.